Uh, good morning. It's my pleasure to uh, lead us in corporate prayer. If you would um, lift up your hearts and bow your head. Father, we come before you and just as we read earlier, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Father, we um, have already confessed that our righteousness is through you and because of you. And because of that, we humbly uh, come to you with um, our prayers, Father. Lord, we do uh, pray for um, the Wittens, Father. I lift up uh, Mike and um, just pray for um, their, as he battles cancer, Father, for their um, faithfulness, Lord. I uh, thank you for uh, just what... Uh, um, just giving members they've been to this church over the years. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would have mercy on them and that, uh, again, Lord, that you would uh, heal Mike and, uh, again, just uh, restore their faith in you during this uh, process. Lord, we do lift up um, Stuart and Mary Cannon Swain as they serve RUF in Tuscaloosa. Father, I pray for his trip to Covenant uh, next week. Lord, we also pray for uh, Daniel and Molly Tortorisi as they also serve. Uh, RUF and Tuscaloosa. Father, I pray that uh, you would continue their ministry, love on them, and uh, serve, uh, allow them to serve you faithfully. Lord, we do pray for the new members that uh, have joined uh, our local church here. Lord, I thank you for um, their willingness to serve you through um, our local uh, church. Father, I pray that as members of this church, that we would welcome them, uh, that we would uh, guide them and help them. And Lord, uh, again, just uh, display uh, what your local church body uh, should look like. Father, we also uh, thank you for uh, Marty Crawford. Uh, I thank you for his family, Lord, uh, uh, Penny and uh, India and Sam. Lord, I thank you for um, his service, but also their family's service at this church, Lord. Um, just the indelible footprint uh, that they've put on us over the years. Lord, I thank you that uh, this church, this local church body is different um, because they've been here and they've served you with us, Lord. Thank you for their ministry. Thank you for, uh, for their heart, Lord. Lord, we pray all of this um, in your son's name. Amen. Some of you will know well the name Larry Crabb. He was a Christian uh, psychologist and a Christian counselor for lots of decades and impacted uh, many people's lives. In one of his books, he tells the story of a friend of his. And his friend grew up in a home profoundly shaped by anger, anger every day, explosive anger. Meal times were miserable. It was either silently toxic or sarcastically noisy, barbs flying everywhere. As he was growing up, this son in this household of anger uh, realized there was a family down the street in this old-fashioned home with a big front porch, and he experienced them as the happy family. 
And so as he got older, he would excuse himself from dinner as early as he could without being yelled at. And then sneak out to the front door and sneak out the house and go down. And if he arrived at the happy family's house during dinner time, he'd crawl under the porch and just sit there and listen to the sound of laughter, joy, and connection. His heart ached to be part of a family of genuine love and holy acceptance. What a wonderful thing it is to join a local church, to be be made part of a new family, to be surrounded by people who have been greatly shaped by love and who are growing in love. Believe it or not, that is what our passage is about today from the apostle Peter. Here's what I want you to know. God in love adopted us. He's made us his very own people. He's made us his family. And in his love, not only has he rescued us, but in the passage today, there are commandments about how to live in love. But please understand this before you hear some commands. The very God who rescued us by his love is going to teach us how to live and walk in his love together. When you and I were Americans and uh, we've grown up in a very individualistic and consumerist culture, when we read scripture and we read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ask questions like, what does the resurrection mean for me? That's a fair question. That's a good one. But the apostle Peter, as he's written this letter, wants us to learn to ask questions like, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for us? What does the love of God in Christ Jesus mean for us and for us together as the people of God? So if you look with me on page 14 of our worship guide, I'm going to read a couple snippets from the previous uh, two weeks only because uh, this is one letter that we're reading and uh, it's r- nice to remember the context. And then I'm going to preach today from verse one, chapter 122 down to the end in chapter 2, verse 3. And note we have a unique word liturgy today because our regular one is in the passage. Uh, would you please turn your attention with me to the word of God from First Peter. Be reminded, it began, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be holy in all your conduct, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, And he said, not with perishable things such as silver of gold or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of y'all, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And here's today's passage. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our hearts are before you. Thank you that you have adopted us. Thank you that you've rescued us to be your people, to be your family, to live lives of love together. Through your word and by your spirit, remind us today of the power of your love and reshape us again and again and again to decenter ourselves and remember that death is at the center of love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, on your little worship guide there, in your worship guide on page 15, there's a little outline. Uh, points one and two came from last week. Just as a reminder, uh, the apostle Peter is saying to people who've heard the good news about Jesus, they believed that he's lived, died, and risen again, and ascended to heaven. And, and G- Peter's saying, hey, you've believed in him. You are God's rescued people. You're saved by God's grace, and you're being kept in, for an inheritance. So Peter's audience were people that lived after Jesus' death and resurrection and before his second coming in glory, just like you and me. And what we said last week was Peter saying, set your hopes fully on that grace that's going to come to you when Jesus comes back and he's going to come back. The very Jesus that took, paid the penalty for your sins, the very Jesus that in his death and resurrection has broken the power of sin over you so that it no longer dominates you, that Jesus will extract even the very presence of sin from your heart. One day Jesus is going to come back and perfect the work he's begun in you. You will be brought to glory when the whole creation will be renewed and restored as the ultimate restored glorious kingdom of God. And so Peter's like says, hey, you're already saved. Set your focus there. And then he says, the father who adopted you is very holy. God is holy. God's not like the pagan deities that use their power and influence to carouse and please themselves. No, your God is holy. And since he's adopted you, become like your father, be holy like he is. And that leads us to today's message, three simple points. Peter wants you to know since you've been rescued by love, since we have been rescued by the love of God, now we have to learn how to live in love, how to become a family shaped, pulsating with the love of God. So he commands us, love one another, leave hatred behind and then long for life more and more long for what God offers you in Christ Jesus in the spirit. So that's our outline for the day. First of all, see the first thing that uh, Peter is saying to us. And I know what it's like to hear someone tell you there's a commandment in the passage. If you're like me, your toes come back a little bit, your throat gets a little dry and you begin thinking, I can't do it. But here's how this 
passage works and how the scriptures work. God rescues us in his grace and his love. And what he commands uh, of us is for our good, for his glory. And he strengthens us to do everything he commands us to do. His commands to us, therefore, are life since he'll supply the love and the grace for us to do it. So here's the commandment, love one another. Who can do this? Here's what verses 22 to 25 are about. The the simple command is that we love one another and everything else in that verse says two things. Since you've purified uh, your souls by obeying the truth, you know what he means? He means you used to not know God. You used to be pagans that lived your own life and walked, went your own way and did your own thing but you heard the good news about Jesus and you repented of your old way of being human and you put your faith in Jesus and now you're trusting in him and obeying him. Basically, Peter's saying, since you're Christians, love one another. That's what he's saying. Since you're converted, since you're God's people. And then he makes conversion really explicit. He says, because you've been born again, not by seed that perishes, but by God's own work. And he uses the metaphor for seed. God has given you regeneration. Just remember in verse three, which we read a little while ago from two weeks ago, John preached in this passage. uh, Peter says to the, to the believers in that part of the world, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage, he says, you've been born again by the good news about Jesus Christ. So think about it. Peter walked with Jesus, knew Jesus, opposed Jesus, got rebuked by Jesus, saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles. He witnessed it, abandoned Jesus at a really critical hour. And then later, knowing Jesus was crucified, also saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter saw all that and believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And he put, Peter put all of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw it. But for you and me, we've heard about it. And that's what Peter is saying in this passage. Um, you heard the good news about Jesus. That's the word of God in this context. The good news, there it is verse, in verse 35. And this word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here who, this is who Peter's addressing. Here's who Peter feels comfortable saying, love one another. People who've heard the good news and put their faith in Jesus. That means people like you and me. And so the commandment is in response to God's saving power is that we love one another. What does this phrase mean? He says, uh, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here's the heart of what Peter is calling us to be as a family. People who decenter ourselves for the sake of others. We all know that love is challenging because ultimately death is at the center of love. And that's what Peter is calling us to in this family that we're now in rescued by the grace of God. It's super hard for us because everything internal to us other than what God has done in Christ Jesus our own sin nature and everything external to us in our culture says you get yours. Please yourself. Be in control. Have more, have better. Don't be content with what you have. There's always more, there's always better. Take care of you. Insist on your own way. Have it your way. I mean, we're deeply shaped by these cultural messages and Peter is saying You've been rescued by a loving God who is generous, merciful, kind. 
and he's calling you out of a trap where you love and serve yourself. He's rescued you from that. So you learn to walk with him and love and give your lives away in love. What can God do? Are there limits to how God can transform you and me inwardly? There are no limits. God has great power to change us from the inside out. And that is what we're being called to live, a new pattern in this passage. You've been deeply loved. So now live a life of love. Last week I told you this was an epistle of hope. And it's true, Peter brings up hope five times, but it's also a letter about love and he brings up love seven times. So we're gonna come back to this again and again and again. I'm about to move on, but I want you to hear this. Once we get past this section and the next section in Peter, what's gonna come up often is how do we relate to people outside the family of God when they're unkind, when they accuse us falsely? When they persecute us, how are we going to respond to evil people outside of the family when they treat us poorly? And Peter's going to teach us to treat them very well for the honor of God and the hope of their salvation. And so he's starting here with the family first. And he's saying, we have to learn to love each other and bear with one another and give our lives away to one another. How in the world are we going to treat people who don't believe what we believe and who don't treat us well, how can we learn to treat them well if we don't learn to treat each other well? So this passage is a strong call for you and me to decenter ourselves and acknowledge that God has put us into a family and he's called us to lay our lives down for one another in love. All right. Well, uh, he believes we've been born again through the, the living and abiding word of God. This word is the good news. And since we've been born again by hearing and believing the good news about Jesus, then he goes on secondly, and this follows quite obviously does it from love one another. uh, He wants us to get rid of some things that block love. Chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice or evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So the second point is leave hatred behind. Leave evil behind. Why must we put these things away? Number one, there's implication in the passage, isn't it? That they're here. I, I don't have to put um, I don't have to put my cocker spaniel away in the kennel because I don't have a cocker spaniel. I don't have to put my raincoat away right now, dripping with rain, because I'm not wearing a raincoat. So when Peter says to people who've been rescued by the grace of God, who've not been perfected yet, here's what you need to do. I want you to love one another and that's going to require that you put away malice. That implication is it's here. I just want you to know there's it's very, very healthy to recognize the sin that lives in us. I can't put away something that I can't acknowledge is here that's in me. And so he tells the people of God to put away all malice, not half of it. All deceit, which assumes that we're naturally deceptive. All hypocrisy, envy, and 
all forms of of slander. We must put these things away because they live in us. We must put these things away because they're all around us. We must acknowledge them and put them away. We must put them away because they're here. They're alive in us. And secondly, we must put them away because they unravel community. These are relational, relationship killing sins. And that's why they're listed here. These are the very vices that destroy community. They're harmony destroying sins. That's why uh, we read that fifth vow today. Now, there was a certain group of people that stood in front of this congregation and took this fifth vow today. But there's a lot more people in the room that have taken this fifth vow before. And it's a good day to remember it when we welcome new members. Everyone sitting here said yes to this statement. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? I want you to know that doesn't mean do a book report on purity and peace. That'd be easy. That means become very keenly aware of what brings about purity and what brings about peace. That's a vow to be devoted to purity and peace. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander destroy relationships and they unravel community. So to the people who just joined the church today, I want you to to hear this. There was a time not that long ago in the history of the church, and you may or may not have heard the story, where we, Covenant Presbyterian Church, were unraveling. We were over, unraveling because we weren't putting away malice and deceit and envy and slander. No, it was all around us and coming out of us. And it was a, they were community-destroying sins, and God in his mercy loved us because we're his people. And he didn't leave us in that state. No, he rescued us. He brought conviction. He brought a humble servant. Our interim pastor was a great, healthy leader who had a lot of courage and had a lot of hard conversations and reminded us what the Bible says about how to reconcile broken relationships. And then here's what really happened. It was amazing. The leaders of this church got into a room together. The elders of this church got into a room together and they said, it's my fault. I led us to this unhealthy place. Here's how I sinned against you. And they, they confessed their sins specifically to one another and said, brother, will you forgive me? And they confessed and forgave each other in private, in one room, a bunch of elders saying, we're the problem. And then something else remarkable happened. On August 26, 2018, uh, those elders called this congregation to a worship service here on a Sunday night. And you know what they did? They had a worship service. In the middle of that service, one of our ruling elders, Todd Dedman, stood up and led a liturgy where the elders had agreed and they confessed six specific ways they had failed this church. Very specific. And this is what the congregation said after each paragraph that detailed how the elders had failed the congregation. They said, for these failures, we forgive you. They didn't say, eh, for these failures, we forgive you. Five times they said, for these failures, we forgive you. And after the sixth confession, they said, for these failures, we forgive you. And for your labor and love on behalf of covenant, we honor and thank you. We pray for your wisdom and humility in leading our church in the future. 
I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, and especially new members, that was the grace of God for this church. He redeemed us from a pit we dug for ourselves because he's gracious and patient and kind and he loves us. And so you're joining a church by the grace of God that's become pretty healthy since those days. And what we don't want to do, whether you're a new member or an old member, is go back and throw in that pit or dig a new pit with malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We must learn to speak up when things are wrong, but we must learn to keep our mouth shut when we're just not getting our way. It's super important to become holy people that love one another and seek what's best for others, the decentering of the self. I don't know if you've read uh, Joan Kendall's memoir, but she, she wrote a memoir called The Secret of, Secrets of Salter Road, and it's fantastic. And it largely focuses on uh, her mother's alcoholism and how, how painful much of that was in her life and the life of her family. And at one point, uh, she talks about a friend the Lord brought into her life, uh, Jane Plummer, who's still her friend today, a sweet, sweet friend her age, uh, and also uh, her relationship with Jane's mother. And I, I commend this uh, memoir to you. It's really powerful, and it, it magnifies the grace of God and tells you how great uh, Henry Kendall is. But anyway, um, what Joan says when she starts talking about Mrs. Plummer, because, you know, her mom was an alcoholic, and she was intoxicated a lot. And Joan said, I I didn't know what normal was. And so she began to observe her friend Jane's mother. And here's one thing she wrote, and I remember I've read it twice now, and it really moved me. Joan wrote these words about Mrs. Plummer. I studied Mrs. Plummer down to minute details and filed the memories away for future reference. I wanted to know how normal mothers reacted in this or that circumstance what mothers were supposed to say or not say in this or that situation. I studied the way she parented, the way she went about her day, and although it seems silly now, even the way she drove and put money in her wallet, I wanted to grow up and be like her. She had a model, someone to look at and watch at and show her she knew what she was experiencing. Was it normal? It wasn't right and good. I want to know what normal, right, and good is. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I have that kind of model. God in his love has adopted us and made us his children. He's given us a big brother in Jesus Christ who's the perfect model. And we look at him, we can see what love looks like because love decenters the self and death is at the center of love. And it was for Jesus Christ, wasn't it? In love, he laid his life down and gave his life for you and me. That's how we're saved and rescued. And it's also a beautiful model about how we live as his people. We must increasingly become a people who give our lives away in love. And that leads us to the third point. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to decenter myself and grow in other-centered love, I'm going to need a lot of grace. I'm going to need some outside strength. I'm going to need some power that I don't have inside myself. I'm going to need some life nourishment, aren't you? If we're going to live what God tells us to do here, to love one another and get rid of all the evil, aren't we going to need some great power and strength from some other source? And that's exactly what Peter tells us to long for because he knows that God will answer this longing. Here's how our passage ends. 
like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That doesn't mean you're not saved yet, but you're going to grow into the maturity of it, you plural. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. That's chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants. Well, that could be an insult, couldn't it? What's the tone of that? Ah, you bunch of babies. It's not the tone at all. I want you to know some of the most wonderful saints I've ever spent time with and ever prayed with and ever done ministry with, they were often in their late 70s and early 80s. And you know what was great about them? They were like little kids. They were curious about the Lord. They wanted to grow. I've watched people mature in their eagerness to grow in their salvation as they hit their 70s and 80s. And when you're around someone like that, it is wonderful. It's not an insult for an apostle to say, like little bitty babies. No, it's wonderful for you and me to say, that's exactly who I am. In the ancient world, the only way for a baby to survive was through its mother's milk. And for some reason, the mother couldn't supply it through a wet nurse. There was no other way. You couldn't go to the Publix around the corner or Kroger or the pig and get formula. You couldn't do it. They didn't have it. There was only one way to survive. And that's the image Peter gives us here. You need life. Long for it. Where are you looking for life? Who's supplying you with the energy and the strength that you need to live the life that you're living? If you're going to try to obey Peter here, the Lord here, and live a life of love and get rid of malice and envy, you're going to need divine power from the inside. So Peter says, long for the life and the power that you need. Why? Because he knows the generous God who supplies these longings. And then verse three, he says, if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. Now, um, what's, what Peter assumes here, this is the kind of if that assumes that you have. And he's been saying that, right? You're believers. You're connected to Jesus. He's risen from the dead. You've heard the good news about him. You believed him. You're the people of God. But it, it's a fair translation to say if, because Peter knows he's addressing a covenant community, a corporate family. And you know, there could have been some people in the audience that didn't believe in the Lord yet who had not yet tasted that the Lord was good. Now I'm a Presbyterian pastor, so I'm like a lot of you. If this verse ended in, if indeed uh, you've got some really strong ideas about the Lord's goodness, we'd all be like, oh yes, I've got books about that. But it's interesting, the metaphor that Peter uses here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a metaphor about experience. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Is his goodness something that you're savoring? Have you tasted it? Do you know what it's like to be in fellowship with the Lord who gives life? Do you know his love for you? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Is God for you ultimately an object to be studied or a feast to be savored? In the book that Larry Crabb wrote where he talked about his friend who grew up in the angry home, who went and hid under the porch trying to listen to the laughter of the happy home. After telling that story, uh, he said at one point he was with that friend and he, and he asked his friend this question. 
Can you imagine what would it have been like if the father in that home of joy and laughter and love and connection, what if that father would have known that you were under the porch? And what if that father would have sent his son to go get you and invite you in? And what if you were sitting around the table with that father and that family and laughing and then you spilled your drink? And what if the father roared, not with anger, but with laughter and said, get him another drink and a clean shirt. I want him to enjoy the feast. Do you know this character of God? The father who in love has adopted you and brought you into his family of love, whose love is for you. He sent his son for you. And today, believer, his son invites you to come again and taste and see that he is good. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you decentered yourself and gave your life for us in love on the cross. We praise you, risen Lord Jesus, since you're alive now to strengthen and nourish us, the very bride, the church that you love. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us again today in the bread and the cup, taste and see that you are good. Amen.